I don't know how that. Uh... All right. They didn't even have to flag me down. I don't know how that passage landed on you. Um, when I first read it, I was not happy about it. You know, first of all, poor me. I've got to preach on this thing. But I think our first response as as readers is to say. I didn't get up early on Sunday morning so that I could hear about Jesus scolding people. And especially if he's scolding me. It's it's bad enough if he's scolding somebody else, but I don't want to hear Jesus scolding people. That we have this picture of Jesus, and so when we read that he began to scold, I think the temptation there is to say, well, mostly when I read the New Testament, I don't see Jesus scolding people. So this must have just been a bad day. Jesus was having a bad day, and I can tune this out. Because everybody has bad days. And the danger with that is if we, if we just discount this, if we say, well, Jesus is having a bad day, I can ignore this, then we miss what he wanted to, to teach us. He, we miss the, we miss the reason that this is actually in the scriptures. But if, if we can power past that, if we can say, look, you know, I, I'm a Bible believing Christian, I really, I really want to hear what Jesus has got to say, even if it's unpleasant, we get to the next two words, and it says, he began to scold the cities. And this is like, oh, come on now. It's bad enough to think Jesus is scolding somebody because they deserve it. But what if Jesus is scolding somebody who just is an innocent bystander? You know, it, it's bad enough if Jesus scolds me and and then, I mean, it scolds somebody down the block for something I've done. That's bad enough. And it's even worse if Jesus is angry at them and scolds me. That, that's the very worst, right? We don't want to think that Jesus is just indiscriminately scolding people uh, at random. So so these these two aspects of the, the way that Matthew has begun this um, is it makes us think, well, maybe I should just check out. Maybe I should just say, Jesus, everybody has off days. And so Jesus you know, woke up on the wrong side of the bed, and I can just tune this out. And if we do that, we will miss the invitation that Jesus extends to us in this. So what I want to do is I want to spend the time unpacking what's going on. And so what I want to do is begin with the, the those two objections. First of all, the objection about it being a city. We actually know where these cities are. Jesus doesn't just fire off a critique of cities in general. He's not lashing out at whatever happens to be handy, Jesus is specifically criticizing three specific places. And so, since we know where they are, let's take a look at them. So this is the Eastern Mediterranean. You've seen it before. And um, this is the Holy Land, Israel, Palestine. And uh, the the big lake in the bottom is the Dead Sea. And the small lake that we're going to look at um, is the Sea of Galilee. It's in the north. And we're going to look at the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. So our last picture is here. So we can see these three places that Jesus is going to criticize. He's going to criticize Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. So um, so these are actual places that Jesus spent a lot of time, and that is the nature of his critique. It's not just that they are cities, but they are cities that, as we hear, he had done his greatest miracles in, the cities in which he had done his greatest miracles. So the critique that Jesus has um, will come to. But when we hear this, this is the greatest miracle. So this is not something that happened, you know, I live in Manhattan, and, you know, I live on 104th Street, and down in the Bowery, a miracle took place. This is not that. This is, you know, look at the cities, right? Chorazin, there's only ruins of, but the other two still exist. They've got new names, and they're, I'm sure they're all different. But these are small cities. These are a, a couple of hundred yards on a side. Uh, we would call them towns, and not big towns. 
They're, they're, they are cities. They're bigger than a village. And a village those days would have been even smaller still. But the point is, these are small communities. If Jesus does miracles, if he does great miracles, then everybody would have heard about it. These are, you know, it's not happening far off on the far end of some big metropolis. This is a small community. And when Jesus does something amazing, people would have heard about it. In fact, a lot of the people would have been there when it took place. These are not big communities. So so he began to scold the cities because he had done his greatest miracles there. And what happened? They didn't change their hearts and lives. They didn't change their hearts and lives. That's the response that Jesus expected. When he demonstrated the availability of God's kingdom, he expected them to change their hearts and minds. Now, what uh, hearts and lives? So what does that mean? This is actually a great translation. If you look at different English translations, you'll see that they, they use this word often, which is they didn't repent. And the problem with that is that's not really an English translation. That's a translation from the original language to church ease. But none of us know what repent means, or it's, it's not English. I mean, you can find it in an English dictionary, but who knows what repent means? And so our translation said, okay, here's what repent means. And so they actually translated it for us. They didn't change their hearts and lives. So what does that mean? It means to believe something, to, to have an interior change that produces exterior results. So if, if the weather forecast is for rain and you were expecting sunshine, then what you believe about that forecast will be manifested by what you do. If you say the weather's always wrong, you don't believe it. It hasn't changed your heart then it's not going to change your life either. But if you say, you know what, let's have the picnic tomorrow because I believe the forecast, right? I'm going to postpone this picnic because I believe the forecast. I'm going to bring a jacket. I'm going to act as if I believe it. It's not enough to simply say, yeah, I changed my mind about the weather. It's actually changing your life. And that's what repent means. It means to believe something at such a deep level that it actually produces change in your life. So Jesus is... Um, scolding these cities because they were exposed to the availability of God's kingdom. They saw these miracles. And we don't know how many, um, at least in the case of Chorazin, we really have no idea because Chorazin isn't mentioned anywhere in the New Testament except here. Um, the other two, we know Jesus did, did perform miracles, and some of them are astounding miracles. But the word here is ambiguous. It could mean a great number of miracles, or it could mean the most amazing, the most intense miracles. But either way, people would have heard, and they would have said, okay, I now see that the kingdom of God is available. And instead of saying, wow, that's something I need to think about, and I need to think about how it's going to affect my life. Instead, they kind of said, that's interesting, and then they went along with their day or whatever. So so Jesus is scolding them because they they did this. And so he, what, is the, what is the specific complaint he says? Uh, Matthew is just summarized to begin with, but now we actually hear from Jesus. It says, how terrible it will be for you, Chorazin, how terrible it will be for you, Bethsaida. So what does that mean? How terrible? This is again, this is a place where I, I really like this translation for a lot of the things it does like this, where again, different translations will, will do this differently, but a lot of English translations will use the word woe. And the problem with that is again, nobody knows what woe means. It's not an English word. I mean, again, it's in the dictionary, but nobody uses it. You, when was the last time you said woe to somebody outside of a church context? We don't know what that word means. So what Jesus is saying is how terrible it means. How, how, how terrible it will be. Uh, instead of saying, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, he says, how terrible it will be for you. So 
what what is that? So I actually I actually looked up what the Greek word is for it, and now you're all going to be Greek scholars because you're going to learn a Greek word. Everybody say ooi, ooi. All right, okay. So you want to know what ooi means? It means ouch. It means ow. It is an interjection. It has no meaning. It's just what people in that culture said when they stubbed their toe or when they hit their thumb with the hammer. They said, Uai. And Jesus is saying, Uai. He's saying, that hurts. That's going to hurt you. It's, it's, you can't say this word without wincing. Jesus is looking at these cities and he's going, ouch. Ouch, Chorazin. Ouch, Bethsaida. Ugh. How terrible it's going to be for you. You're going to regret that. Jesus is saying, this is something you will regret. So, what does he mean? Well, let's read on. He says, if the miracles done among you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have changed their hearts and lives and put on funeral clothes and ashes a long time ago. So Jesus has already, we've already seen, and we can look up, um, at least in the case of Bethsaida and Capernaum, we can read more about the miracles that Jesus has done. And Jesus is saying, if those same miracles had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented. So what are Tyre and Sidon? Well, they are further up the coast. They're up the coast toward um, toward uh, Asia Minor, They're the Mediterranean coast. They are Gentile cities in what is today Lebanon. So they, they're, they're both still there, and they're much bigger. And Jesus is saying, even people who didn't have any experience of the things of God, even Gentiles, even pagans, even in their culture and even in much bigger cities, if the miracles that I had performed here took place there, everybody in that city would have repented. Even though they are not believers, even though they, I mean, they, they, they believe in things, but they believe in, in the pagan gods of the Gentiles. Jesus is saying, they would have responded differently than you did, Bethsaida and Capernaum. That they saw the avail, they would have seen the availability of kingdom of God, and it would have made a difference in their lives. How would it have made a difference? He says they would have changed their hearts and lives and put on funeral clothes and ashes a long time ago. What does he mean by that? He means that they would have they would have seen the opportunity and they would have discarded the old and taken on something new. They would have they would have made such a big change in their life that. That, that they would have said, I'm, I'm just going to bury the old me, that that's a different me, that, that, that yeah, I know, I used to do that. Yeah, I, that was the way I used to be, but that's the old me. I am putting on these funeral clothes and ashes to show that, that I am a new person, that it is my intention to live into what is now available to me. Jesus is saying, they would have done that, and Bethsaida and Capernaum, you missed the opportunity. So he says, I say to you that, on, that Tyre and Sidon will be better off on Judgment Day than you. Now, this is a side conversation, and I shouldn't go here, but I can't resist. Sometimes people ask uh, uh, Christians, they say, yeah, but what about people who never heard about Jesus? What about good pagans? What about, what about people who, who behave you know, as good people, that they are admirable people, but they don't know Jesus? And Jesus says explicitly that... It will be better off for them on Judgment Day. He's no longer talking about a speculation that if this had happened, then that would have occurred. He's now saying it will be better for them on Judgment Day than for you, Bethsaida and Chorazin. 
So Jesus goes on. What about Capernaum? He singles out Capernaum because this was the center of Jesus' ministry. All, all during his, his years in Galilee, Jesus operated out of um, this, this town, Capernaum. And it's the place where he did the most miracles. So Jesus singles it out. He says, he says, will you be honored by being raised up to heaven? You, you had God operating uh, uh, in, in a way that showed his kingdom in your midst. So wh- how, what is your response to that? You just walk around going, aren't we hot? Look, look how awesome we are. He says, will you be honored because God has visited you? No, you will, you will not be honored. You will not be raised up to heaven. You'll be thrown down to the place of the dead. You'll be discarded. You'll be thrown in the heap with all the other dead things. That, that, that the fact that something occurred in your midst is only relevant if it actually resulted in changed hearts and lives. So he goes on. He says the same thing. After all, if the miracles that were done among you had been done in Sodom, it would still be here today. Now, Jesus is really poking them here because Sodom is worse than a Gentile city. Sodom is in the south of us, part of Israel, or, or it was. No one knows where it is. It was someplace near the Dead Sea. But other than that, nobody knows because it was destroyed. It was proverbial for having been destroyed. In the, the book of Genesis, uh, we read that God is God has had it with their wickedness. And so he sends two messengers there. And they treat the messengers just as badly as they treated everybody else. That they, they, they didn't have the opportunity, they, they didn't behave like saying, oh my goodness, this is the last straw. God has sent his messengers. We better, we better change our ways. They didn't do that. And Capernaum is saying, what you did is even worse. That God sent his messenger. God sent me here. God uh, performed these miracles here. And you blew it off. You kind of said, eh, whatever. And he's saying, that is why Sodom, it would be better for Sodom on, it, it will be better for Sodom, the land of Sodom on the judgment day than it will be for you. So that's the reading. Jesus has, has issued these, these, uh, specific statements about these towns and we heard it summed up as scolding. So what does he mean by judgment day? What is he getting at here? What is, what, you know, the fact that Jesus is unhappy is one thing, but there's information in here about the, 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 the implications of Jesus's unhappiness. So what are we to make of that? What does he mean when he talks about judgment day? Well, historically, uh, many, many interpreters have said this is a punishment that Jesus is saying that I was there and you dissed me and it's going to come back around and hurt you someday. That, that I'm going to get even with you someday. I'm going to punish you. When you show up before my throne on Judgment Day, I'm going to open up a whole can of hurt on you. That's the way a lot of people have interpreted this. But, you know, the truth is that if God wanted to punish them, if God wanted them to be miserable, he never would have sent Jesus. That apart from God's love, this is a world filled with darkness. So I'm with a different school of thought. I, I come down on a different side of this, which says that it simply means what he said, how terrible it will be, that that you, you know, it makes me wince to think about it. You will regret what happened. You will regret, you will regret the fact that you didn't have the, the, the wisdom or the courage to respond when you saw the availability of God's kingdom, that you will be filled with regret. Now, I'm not saying it's not painful. But if your picture is a lake of fire, leave it as a picture. 
Instead, think about the worst pains you have. Think about the, the regrets you have, the, the opportunity you had to do it differently and you didn't. The things that you have to kind of sometimes in the middle of the night, you wake up and say, I wish I'd said that one thing before they were gone. I wish I had had the opportunity to go back and fix the thing I did. Those regrets, imagine them for all eternity. Jesus is saying how terrible it will be to know that the kingdom of God was right there. You could have drawn on the power of the kingdom of God to change your heart, to change your life to change your marriage, to change your relationship, to change your parenting, to change your use of substances, to change the way you dealt with money. You could have had that in your life. And when the kingdom of God was demonstrated with power in your midst, before your face, you said, nah, whatever. I think that's what Jesus is getting at. Yes, it will be painful. But it will be pain that makes sense. It'll be pain that we can say, yeah, I, there's nothing I can do about it now. That opportunity was there. And one of the reasons, honestly, one of the reasons I say this is not simply because, because of the, the, the broad witness of scripture, but because we actually know historically Capernaum was, was not, um, uh, uh, unsalvageable, that in the, the history of the Christian movement, it became a leading center of the Christian movement in, in, the, in Galilee, that, that it actually um, repented and, uh, and changed its ways. So, so for those reasons, I don't believe that Judgment Day is simply that God is going to get even. I think God is going to let us see the opportunities we squandered. So I think that's what Jesus is getting at is that we will have regrets. We will realize we had the opportunity to change our lives, and we didn't. I had a conversation this week with a young man who is a skeptic. He's um, about my son's age, and um, he went to a different church, and uh, and he has now in his... In his uh, um, you know, I'm coming from a different perspective. In his wisdom... As, as, a, as a grown young man, he has become a skeptic. He has decided that the faith that he was presented as a child uh, is not a true picture of reality. And so he has, he has walked away from his Christian belief. And it was a, it was a real opportunity to hear his story and, and understand really kind of what his, what his concerns were. But I asked him, what would convince you? What would it take now, knowing what you know, having thought this over, having read, you know, he's read a lot. He's a lot like Neil. Um, he's, he's read enough to impress me a lot. And I said, so knowing all that, what would it take to persuade you of the faith that you grew up in, of the validity of that faith? And he said he would want a palpable demonstration of God's presence, that he wanted, he wanted God to manifest himself in a way that would demonstrate convincingly that God was real. And at this point, I had to laugh. I hope I laughed inside instead of outside, but because that was exactly what I was thinking when I was 25. I was thinking, I won't believe it until I see it. God would have to demonstrate something to me in a way that persuaded me, that God would have to make himself manifest. 
And what I told him was I said, well, you should write it down. Because what I discovered in my own life is that there was no set of proofs that God could offer that I couldn't weasel out of. That I could shift any goalpost. I, I, no matter what I asked God to do to demonstrate his availability, I could excuse it. Well, that was, you know, I was sleepy and I probably wasn't seeing things straight. I, I, um, had a bad pizza, you know, that would have done that anyway. It's just a coincidence that I think we have an infinite capacity to shift our goalposts around. And so what I told him to do is to write it down. Say in writing, this will persuade me and then start watching for that. Maybe God will show up. But if he does, then he has to ask himself, okay, now what? Okay, I have got the answer I was hoping for. Or maybe I was hoping not to see. What am I going to do with it? That is the dilemma that Capernaum and Bethsaida and Chorazin are faced with. They have the demonstration of the availability of God. What will they do with it? So the first thing I would say is to write it down. Say, what would persuade you? If you're not a believer, if you're if you're someone who is still thinking about Jesus, you're like this young man I met. Um, if you're like me at that same age, um, say, what would what would persuade me? Write that down, and then ask yourself later on: Am I just trying to weasel out of this? Oh no, I've I've grown and matured, and now I realize that was a dumb thing, and I need to ask this new thing instead. So write it down. But the other thing is to say, if that happens, then what? And and this is something that everybody can do, whether you already believe in Jesus or whether you don't. You can say, if God persuades me of his availability, if God's kingdom, if I know it's near me, if I know that God has the power to change hearts and lives, then what? What would I do with that? What would I do if God could actually intervene in my marriage? What would I do if God would actually help me with my addiction? What would I do with my finances if I knew that God's power was available to me? If you're a Christian, you know what this is. This is this is prayer. And I think as Christians, we're, we, we shy away from that. We, we, we don't want to put the Lord to the test. We say this phrase, right? Jesus quotes it tells the devil, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to to the test. But testing God is different from trusting God. When you simply say, this would persuade me, period, that's testing God. But when you say, this would persuade me because I need this change in my life. I need my life to be different in this area. That's trusting God. So the question for us, the question for anyone who's thinking about Jesus, is not simply does God exist, but can God make my life different? Can God work in me, in my heart, and in my life to make me a different person? Because if he doesn't, if we don't ask, or if God shows us anyway and we reject the opportunity to change... How terrible it will be. Think of the regrets. Think of the opportunities we will have squandered. Let's pray.
God, many of us here have become persuaded that your kingdom is real, that your son spoke with authority when he offered its availability to us. Lord, if we have not leaned into that, if we have not asked you to change our own hearts and minds and lives, then, Lord, help us to see new opportunities to trust you. And, Lord, if we're still looking, if we still want some evidence of your availability, Lord, help us to to ask a more pointed question, not some hypothetical about whether you exist, but whether you can change us. I pray these things through Christ our Lord. Amen. What are we doing? We're doing a song.